there's like a group of Midwestern femmes who are pole dancing for Jesus. And I am really like deeply confused. I'm deeply confused by the phenomenon. I'm deeply confused about how they're able to reconcile this dichotomy, you know, where they're like, this is not sensual, it's spiritual, and it's for Jesus, but I feel sexy. (laughs) (laughs) I think you're thinking about a cross, not a pole, ma'am. This is Unladylike. I'm Kristen, and praise the Lord for pole dancing, you know? (laughs) That was Selena the Stripper you just heard offering my favorite example of the lengths that some pole dancers will go to to distance themselves from its strip club origins. Selena is the president of Strippers United, a strippers' rights organization, and their vision, y'all, is to, and I quote, dismantle whorephobia and decriminalize sex work. <laughs> You'll be hearing from Selena a little later this episode and for an entire part two that will come out week after next. Now, in case you haven't noticed, pole dancing has become popular in recent years. Can we all accept that? There's so much buzz surrounding the new film Hustler, starring Jennifer Lopez, Cardi B, and Constance Wu. And the cast has been very open about how hard it was to learn pole dancing. And lucky for us, J-Lo just posted a 13-minute behind-the-scenes look at her training. And oh my God, it's intense. I mean, (laughs) I hate to bring it to Bravo, but on The Real Housewives of Salt Lake City, One of the housewives attempted to forge basically an entire personality off the fact that she has a pole in her home. There's a whole world of competitive pole sports that has sprung up. I've heard from a number of unladies who have started taking pole classes, gotten hooked. But the unlady who really got my wheels turning on the pole of it all is a listener named, and I promise I'm not playing favorites here, Her name is Kristen. (laughs) Hi, Kristen. This is Kristen. I've been pole dancing as a hobby since 2015, and it's connected me to a wonderful community of dancers that includes sex workers and sex worker activists that have been trying to fight for basic workers' rights and decriminalization. And by listening to sex workers and also existing as a pole dancer myself in the online space, I've learned a lot about how algorithms and social media companies treat different bodies differently in regards to who's allowed to post and share their lives and who cannot. So I think online discrimination against sex workers and pole dancers would be a good topic to talk about because underneath it all is a conversation about the right to express ourselves as we wish and to do what we want with our bodies. Obviously, I agree that it's a good topic, but I also think that we can't talk about the online discrimination of 
sex workers and pole dancers in isolation. It has to be contextualized with offline realities, realities at the opposite ends of the pole, so to speak, of your recreational pole dancers for pleasure and pole dancers doing it to pay the bills. So in this two-parter, I want to explore all of Kristen's voice memo, connecting the dots and overlooked differences between the two, between that fight for basic labor rights in strip clubs led by strippers who originated the art form that recreational pole dancers now find empowerment in and in safe spaces. Like that right there in and of itself is a lot and it is layered and taking another cue from Kristen with a K. We're going to start with the online piece and what happened when recreational pole dancers got a taste of the legal discrimination sex workers are routinely subjected to. I am Dr. Carolina Are. I'm an online moderation researcher focusing on the deplatforming of sex, nudity, and bodies in general. And I'm also a pole dance performer and instructor, as well as an activist and a blogger slash content creator, which I'm aware is a mouthful. All of these things kind of feed into one another. I was already a blogger when I started my PhD, which at the time was in content moderation, but in the content moderation of online abuse and conspiracy theories. And around that same time, my own content as a pole dance, initially like an amateur pole dancer and then a pole dance instructor, started getting censored. So because the community I was observing in my PhD was so abusive that I couldn't really publish from it, uh, conveniently or inconveniently, I shifted my research direction to reflect my own experiences of censorship and as a result the experiences of a variety of censored content creators so it's essentially a not life imitates art because censorship is an art but you know what i mean it's basically a blending of my different persona well what is your pole dancing origin story like when and why did you first take to the pole i love that it's like a marvel villain origin (laughs) thing or superhero (laughs) or superhero yeah in a way like i feel like you know we all have sort of an origin story because i interview a lot of pole dancers for my blog and a lot of people say oh i've come to find pole dance at a time where i felt a bit lost or where i you know was going through something I needed a new hobby and I think for me it was very similar I I was coming out of an abusive relationship I was doing a master's in criminology in Australia so I was essentially retraining because I used to do marketing and PR before so I was very burnt out by work I needed an escape from the PR life and I also needed an escape from the UK where I was working but then I realized that uprooting yourself in your mid-20s isn't great in terms of helping you make friends. So there was a pole studio near my university, and pole is quite mainstream in Australia. It's kind of like Zumba, but sexier. There's a lot of classes (laughs) and studios everywhere. 
So I just, I did it and I, I fell for it straight away. I, I got hooked. I used to do gymnastics as a child and I missed being upside down. And, and that's how I started. I really just wanted to be upside down and to do something dangerous, which I enjoyed. But, you know, coming from an abusive relationship with experiences of sexual assault and all of that, I went through a period of celibacy because I felt like I didn't want to open myself up in that way to anyone and Paul provided a way to express myself sexually in a safe space so yeah loads of reasons all together I guess professional and personal I've heard similar kinds of stories from unladylike listeners who are very <laughs> passionate about pole dancing and found it to be unexpectedly kind of healing and also empowering. What do you think it is that makes the poll so powerful? On the one hand, it really annoys me that so many of these stories are about people needing to heal and particularly women needing to heal because it feels like society just throws trauma at us and I'm kind of like you know it would be so nice if people just got into pole just for shits and giggles because they wanted <laughs> to do it and that it need it didn't need to be healing but I think I think there's something to be said about spaces where you are allowed to both be sexy and be goofy in a room with people that are trying to do the same thing with no expectations. Because I think that's really the power of a beginner class. And I think particularly because nudity is required. And if anything, more often than not, nudity is celebrated, which is something that generally in the outside world is something that is frowned upon. I think it's the removal of judgment and the ability to experiment and the ability to be naked outside of that evaluation that you see in a variety of spaces and also of a sexualization that you see in a variety of spaces. Before taking up pole, I felt like my body wasn't mine. I would be sexualized, even in situations where, you know, I was talking about my interests or my work. Like I could be talking about quantum physics, but whatever I was doing for the person that was watching me, they were sexualizing me because, you know, I was an Italian in the UK, very visibly foreign interest. While with Paul, I was visibly more sexual and sensual. And I was taking that over. I was, I was, I was in charge of that sexuality. I, I choose to willingly sexualize myself. If I'm dancing half naked, if I'm performing, yes, I'm doing that. And I'm choosing to do that. I feel like it's given me an instrument of sometimes control and some other time, just um, a, like a time and a place to sexually express myself on my own terms. Within this context of sexual and bodily autonomy, how does sex work stigma show up in pole dancing communities that you've seen? I think, unfortunately, still, people that are not very comfortable, maybe culturally or religiously or professionally, with saying that they're pole dancers, I feel like they have to be like, I'm not a stripper, though. I I'm just doing this for fitness. 
which is ironically not just damaging to those who have created and popularized our sports. So essentially the people we should be thanking for, for giving this to us, but it's also damaging to pole dancers themselves. And by throwing a marginalized population under the bus, you're not actually improving people's judgment of your practice and your art because a lot of the comments I get on social media are oh I love what you do but why do you have to do that naked like the the issue sometimes doesn't even seem to be the fact that I'm dancing on a pole but that I'm dancing naked and it's because people are uncomfortable with bodies gaining autonomy they're uncomfortable with bodies owning and reclaiming their sexuality and they're uncomfortable particularly with women and LGBTQIA plus bodies not existing to please a man, you know? And distancing yourself from strippers is not going to make people stop frowning upon all of those things. It only makes you look like a dick. So sex work stigma shows up, sadly, in pole studios and amongst pole dancers that haven't managed to figure out why it is they're so uncomfortable with what they're doing. Because they could just be doing gymnastics or ballet, but they've chosen to do pole. So they like the titillating aspect of pole. They just don't want the stigma associated with it, which I think is quite hypocritical. And it's essentially saying, I want to cut myself out of that. And also people that just assume that sex work is necessarily bad. You know, if, if I get compared to a stripper, I'm like, oh my God, thank you so much. Like, you know, pole, dancer, <laughs> pole dancing exists because of strippers. It's not offensive to me. Uh, it's a compliment. You know, I know a lot of strippers. They're some of the most impressive activists, performers, entrepreneurs that I know. It takes a lot of strength and, and even just, you know, expertise in business to do that job. Like you're doing a customer face job all night in heels with people that are essentially judging you based on the way you look. That's not easy. So getting into your research for Mm -hmm. listeners who are maybe unfamiliar, what is shadow banning? Shadow banning is a light censorship technique whereby platforms don't remove content from their apps, but actually they make it less visible. So making sure that people don't see it or even just not recommending it to their For You or Explore pages. So when I received an apology from Instagram about shadow banning in 2019 for the shadow banning of pole dance, the majority of pole dancing hashtags had been shadow banned. So that meant that we couldn't find inspiration while learning from each other. We couldn't market our classes or our products or our brands. So as individuals and as businesses, it was incredibly damaging. And what was even worse at the time, and this only changed recently, at least on Instagram, was that we weren't notified by it. So we were gaslighted into thinking that our content wasn't performing well because it was boring, because it was our fault, but actually it was the platform that was fiddling with it. And I demonstrated that through my paper. It's called The Shadow Band Cycle. It's, I, I believe it's the first peer-reviewed study to go out about shadow banning. And basically, I showed my stats pre-shadow banning and post-shadow banning because Instagram started heavily shadow banning nudity after the approval of FOSTA-SESTA in the US. So 
an exception to Section 230 of the Telecommunications Act, which essentially made platforms legally liable for promoting sex trafficking, which is a crime. But the law lumps in sex trafficking with sex work. And because platforms work with machine learning, they've essentially trained their algorithms to identify anything remotely sexual, which has, of course, been identified with women's bodies more often than not, because the people who make these algorithms are men. And basically what I proved was that before platforms started catching up with Foster Sesta, with my very small 3,000 followers at the time, I could reach about 15,000 people with a video. And then after the platforms uh, caught up with Foster Sesta, even if my following had doubled, my content wasn't even reaching that many people. So it wasn't about the likes. It wasn't about the comments. My content wasn't being seen. And for ages, Instagram denied that, that they were particularly discriminating against nudity and against sexuality. They only react to uh, PR shit shows, essentially. <laughs> Yeah. In 2019, what did it take to get Instagram to apologize? It took a few things. So initially, rumors of the shadow ban started circulating in my network, mainly raised by sex workers, because obviously first they're going to be the first affected by any social media law. I decided to write a scathing blog post against Instagram. And because I used to work in PR and I have a degree in journalism, I was like, okay, I'm just going to slag off a giant corporation and I have to give them the right to reply because at least my ass is covered. Ha ha ha, they're never going to reply. Well, they did reply, weirdly. So that kickstarted a conversation with their press department in London. And I kept asking them questions and they kept denying any wrongdoing. Then what happened was all the pole dancing hashtags were shadow banned in the summer of 2019. Loads of pole dancers started complaining about it. I kept writing articles about it and I was explaining what that meant politically and globally from the research side. And then some major world famous pole dancers that had started a petition against the shadow ban got in touch with me and they were like, can we join forces? So we joined forces and um, we asked our respective networks to essentially just ask us the questions that we would then relate to Instagram. And they replied with the apology because by then about 20,000 people had signed the petition People were clearly pissed off. It had become like an image problem for them. So that then got a lot of coverage in the media. And essentially that started the momentum with people realizing that Instagram actively diminished the reach of not just sex work and pole dancing, but sex education, photography, art, activism, even, you know, queer and sex toy brands, lingerie brands. It was essentially affecting everyone. So Instagram issues this apology to a pole dancing community. Was there any apology to strippers and sex workers within that community? Of course not. 
Of course, there wasn't. And I think what really pisses me off is that if you look at Instagram community guidelines, they place selling sexual services in the same paragraph as harms like terrorism and self-harm. These are not the same, first of all. And second of all, if you look at the way they they treat nudity, at some point they say something like, we understand that people may want to post nudity, but for this and this other reason, we don't allow nudity on our platform. With sex work, they don't even say, we understand that people might want to do sex work on our platform. Like these people are erased, like completely erased. And what's even more annoying is that Sex workers are incredibly proficient when it comes to working within community guidelines. But despite that, their content is removed and their accounts are deleted regardless. At the same time, when Instagram apologized to pole dancers in 2019, we were being heavily, aggressively sold Hustlers, the movie with J-Lo and Cardi B. And as much as I love seeing their butt and seeing their boobs, these people pretending to be strippers were being marketed to us. But actual strippers and actual pole dancers trying to make a living through that platform were being shadow banned or deplatformed. If you're deplatformed and if you can't make money out of your job, you're not safe. It's more that they don't want to be seen to be in violation of foster sesta because otherwise that could result in fines and more image problems. So they're taking the easy way out and using sex workers as a scapegoat. I'm curious as well if social media censorship has deepened any of the sex work stigma within civilian pole dance communities. I would say actually Foster Sesta has done something to make even the, not a stripper, wankers, understand that no matter why you think this is happening, no matter how different you think you are, the algorithm is going to read you in the same way. So I think actually, at least in my circles, it's drawn sex workers and pole dancers a bit closer. We as pole dancers have done harms to sex workers that are going to take a long time to repair because imagine just making something so popular and then being thanked with this stigma by people that should actually be supporting you. Like, I'm not surprised that sex workers are mad. They should be mad. But I think like, I think censorship is making a lot of people understand that we're all in in the same boat and that we need to fight together. You know, I'm, I'm part of different cultures in the sense that I'm Italian, but I live in the UK and I mainly post in English and, and Italy is very conservative and the pole dance community there is facing a lot of stigma already. So I think there I do see a bit of distancing, but I think here, maybe because there has been a huge effort by pole dancers to include strippers because so many pole dancers were strippers or still are strippers and they're out and proud. I think it's more difficult in the English speaking world to be like, no, no, you know, not a stripper now, because I think we've moved on from that. We're kind of like, it's not 2010 anymore, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Do you have any kinds of best practices for being an an ethical pole dancer? 
strippers are going to be more affected by censorship than we are as pole dancers. So sharing their content could be really helpful. Supporting them in their battles can be really helpful. Like here in the UK, strippers are often threatened with the closure of their workplaces and they organize a lot of fundraisers. So as a pole dancer, the least you can do is share and donate um, to those fundraisers, amplify those voices. And, you know, I feel like pole dancers are that point of contact with the sex work industry with people that might never have wanted to talk about sex work. Like I myself, I was a feminist before being a pole dancer and I'd never been in contact with with a sex worker or with the idea of, of why people do sex work. And doing pole opened my mind to so many things which are now crucial to my politics and my activism. So I think as pole dancers, we should not only educate people to the origins of pole, but we should also educate people to sex workers' rights and, and you know, pass the mic when we can, obviously include sex workers. There are amazing sex worker activists all over the world. The East London Strippers Collective, the Black Sex Workers Collective, yes, a stripper in the US, you know, all sorts of organizations like United Sex Workers and Decrim Now in the UK. There, There is so much that we can do and learn by following other people. And I think, you know, um, I would like to move on from this hashtag not a stripper, um, you know, uh, scenario where actually when we do interviews about Paul, we actively credit sex workers instead of trying to sanitize what we do. And, and one more thing, if I hear one more person saying that pole dancing doesn't come from stripping, but comes from Malakam or Chinese pole, I am going to explode. There is a reason why we pole dance in tiny thongs and stripper shoes. And that reason is strippers. It's not Indian men from the fifth century doing acrobatic stuff on wooden poles. So let's stop spreading fake news. And here with more fake news debunking is our next guest, Selena. Let me just lay out the argument that people say. They People say that there have been traditions, especially in Eastern cultures, I want to say in Indonesia, maybe Thailand, there's like a variety of wooden pole dances that are traditional. And also I've noticed like they tend to be practiced by men. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's also like Chinese pole, which is kind of more rooted in like a gymnastics background. The pole that people are practicing on is not a wooden traditional pole. And it's not with the desire to engage with like Southeast Asian indigenous dance traditions. And it's not typically aesthetically that way either. The aesthetic of pole dancers, it tends to be on a spinning or static metal pole that resembles the strip club pole. And the way that people outfit themselves for it is often sexy. And the shoes that people wear to dance on the pole tends to be pleasers or other shoes that are made for pole performance that are geared towards strippers. So, you know, it's like if it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, maybe it's a fucking duck. It's a form of cultural whitewashing of of something that is more complicated because people are afraid of that complexity. And I think that it's just really hard to overcome that stigma, the burden of stigma that strippers have.
I am Selena the Stripper. I am an activist, a writer. I run Strippers United, which is a coalition of strippers and other organizers advocating for the labor rights of strippers in the United States and in other places. We have our furthest member out in New Zealand. I share my experience as a stripper to talk about what it has been like working within this industry, generally very under-regulated, and, and that can be good and bad. I talk about the pros and cons of where we are in this kind of like wild west of how this industry is right now. But I also talk about being an escort, being a full-service sex worker, and being a sugar baby, doing online sex work, just generally sharing my variety of experiences with people who are often like me, who have tried multiple different forms of sex work, who have maybe not been able to talk about their experience because of the stigma, because of, you know, fear, because they may not want to lose connections with family or friends, because they may not be able to fully embody being out for any number of reasons. Could you tell me your pole dancing origin story. When did you and the pole first meet? Yeah. So I got into pole dancing just from stripping. The first time that I touched a pole was at my first strip club in Baltimore back in 2016, I want to say, maybe 2015. was It was like early days of Trump running for office, which is how I re recall. <sighs> and yeah, the very innocent days comparatively. <laughs> um, I didn't have any pole dancing skills whenever I first auditioned to be a stripper. It's a misconception that strippers actually have to know how to pole dance or that strippers do know how to pole dance. It is not a necessity in the industry, but it was something that I really admired whenever I saw strippers who were able to do it. At the time that I started dancing, it was earlier days of like the pole dance phenomenon as far as how it has become this kind of global sensation. So it wasn't like people were just looking online at pole dance videos and pole dance studios were not majorly popular. So there wasn't the same expectation. And what I was exposed to was very informal, mostly strippers who were able to do a few tricks. And so I didn't really learn how to dance on the pole until later on. And, and a lot of that came from watching people online and watching my fellow strippers and just trying to imitate what they were doing. So it was a lot of trial and error and throwing myself at a pole. <laughs> Which sounds, sounds daunting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it takes a particular kind of strength and a particular kind of leveraging your weight, I guess, like learning how to work with your weight. But yeah, there's, there's all kinds of funny memes about how people who are able to do pole stuff are very buff. And <laughs> I think that that's, that's accurate. <laughs> <laughs> do you have a favorite aspect of pole dancing? Honestly, the money element is the best <laughs> element of pole dancing to me. I, you know, it's funny, like I've, I am very opinionated about pole as, as you know, <laughs> and I have practiced alone in my house. I have practiced alone in a studio, but there's nothing nearly as fun as practicing at a strip club and having money rain down or like having somebody like hand you hundreds or even 20s, you know, even if somebody's just like 
slowly giving you 20s like that there's a special feeling to that and really that's I mean that's such a joy for me like being able to do a performance that is fun is great but being able to get compensated for doing a performance that is fun is the real that's the real fun On like a typical shift, how long are you dancing? Honestly, it depends. It really depends on the kind of club that you're at. So speaking to strippers, like there's a number of different kinds of clubs. So there are clubs like Miami style or Atlanta or Houston style that are about like the pole performance experience. It's all about the stage And it's all about being in the crowd and having fun and being this like sexy party starter. And so in that kind of environment, it'll be like high capacity. You're dancing in a shift with like 60 other dancers and everybody's rotating through the stages. I mean, smaller clubs, maybe there's two stages, but in some of these bigger clubs, it's like multi-story building kind of setup. You could be just doing two songs an hour. You could be doing two songs like every 30 minutes. It just depends so much. In certain clubs, in the clubs where dances are the bread and butter of your economy, you want to be kind of less on stage because it means you're taken away from talking to customers and selling like dances that can make you like $800 to $1,000. So like if you're getting split of that, like half of that, for example, you want to be selling that versus making like $100 on stage for a set. It just depends on what the money flow of the club is, what the economy is at that club and how you can maximize your time. So you may not be dancing a ton, like a good night at my old club, you'd be like, I would dance maybe four times over the course of my shift for like, usually like songs that strip clubs are short because they're trying to, again, maximize their time. And if you're selling a single song and it's priced pretty low, like you don't want to be stuck in that song for like five minutes, you know, if you're selling it per song, you want it to be like two minutes and 30 seconds. Compared to civilian pole dancers who are just like paying a fee to take a class in order to pole dance, what kinds of fees do strippers have to pay? So we are paying often a house fee to work or a stage fee. And in California, it depends because we have a really funky, special little system where we are employees. And so we have to pay our own wages. And so now instead of having like the regular, regular quote unquote stage fee or house fee, we have to pay our hourly wage by selling dances. So so stage fees and house fees can vary. Sometimes it's like you pay $40 to work or $60 or sometimes 100 or a couple hundred if you want to show up really late. The closer to peak hours, mm-hmm. um, the more you'll end up paying in house fees. Clubs want you to show up during like the slow hours so that they still have strippers available to entertain customers. So They incentivize that by lowering the house fees if you come in earlier. Some clubs, they have a minimum where you have to sell something like, I mean, maybe like you'll have like a weekly thing that you have to do, like sell $400 in like bottle service or something, or you'll have to 
meet other quotas. There's just a lot of different ways that these clubs kind of tax us to work. And in California, so you have to meet your hourly wage quota. And that can mean you have to sell like $200 in, in dances or $300 in dances. It depends on the club. And if you don't make it, that number can roll over to your next shift. So you can kind of owe money to the club, which is definitely, if it sounds like wage slavery, it's because it is. You become an indentured servant to the strip club to some degree. And then on top of that, we often have to tip out managers, the bartenders, bouncers, the dance counters, pretty much anybody who is working some job that somehow helps your job at the club. And that's not even talking about like the dance cuts because it varies across the country. Some clubs don't take any money out of a dance, but some clubs take as much as 50, 60%. If you miss a shift, you can get punished by getting even less of a percentage of your dances. So say you sign up for a Tuesday shift you miss your Tuesday shift. Your percentage that you get could get shifted down to like you get 30% of the dances that you sell and the club gets 70%. And something that I've learned doing activism work in this is that there are no laws regulating this. There's no law in place in any of the 50 states that I'm aware of that limits how much clubs are able to take out of each dance that limits house fees or anything. Like some states will say, oh, you, you're not allowed to pressure employees to tip or independent contractors to tip, but it's not enforced most of the time because the government doesn't tend to really care about this issue. Mm -hmm. There's almost this perception that like strippers should suffer. Like we deserve to suffer a little bit because of the work that we do. Before you can even get in a club though don't you have to pay for like a state permit to even work so the state is also charging you yeah exactly and it's not even just the state it can be from county to county so san diego county las vegas if you want to strip in las vegas atlanta i'm pretty sure as well i'm sure there are many other places that have this but you have to go and you have to get an adult entertainer's permit. You have to register with the police and get 3D fingerprinted to get this permit. And I, I went through this whole process in San Diego whenever I was trying to dance down there. And it cost me over $400 to get this permit, which is like I was dirt poor at the time. I had maybe $500 in my account and I was like, I need to be able to work and make some money. And it just, this is the kind of job that people do as almost like a last minute thing a lot of times. You know, what job can I work that can give me like enough money to pay for gas or to pay for a hotel people are dealing with being unhoused housing insecurity is a very real thing and like honestly more prevalent within the stripper community than people even talk about and so this is like a job that people do to kind of make ends meet for the night and whenever there are barriers in place like this it makes it even harder for people to be able to access that vital couple hundred bucks that gets you through there's the economic costs but also tell me a little bit about the physical cost well, I feel like stripping ages your body double time. It's the pole dancing part of it and the floor work part of it more than like the emotional toll or stuff like that. You're exposed to 
like you're up in people's business. You are face to face with a lot of people. So that was like a really big deal during the pandemic. A lot of strip clubs shut down. Most were forced to, but some did not. I mean, it affects your immunity being kind of up close and personal with like a lot of people. You're exposed to germs that way. But then there's the impact of like walking in six inch heels or taller. You're in these platforms for often like six to eight hours. I have a lot of friends who work double shifts like every day. So they were working 12 hour days in these shoes. And you just have to think like that kind of pressure on the ball of your feet it really affects like your joints. So it affected my ankles, it affected my knees, it affected my hips, especially. So I have really crackly joints and I have chronic pain as a result um, of a lot of like bending and, you know, doing those pull tricks. It, it really strained my joints. And, you know, the longer you're in it, the more wear and tear this has um, on your joints. I started wearing knee pads, but my shins would still get bruised and stuff like that. And I would just kind of be limping around <laughs> because of how intense it was. And of course, we're not insured. Most of the time, clubs misclassify us. And even if you are an employee, a lot of times clubs misrepresent the actual hours that you work to avoid having mm -hmm. to pay you things like overtime or healthcare or any of the basic employee benefits. We're treated like racing horses, you know, like... Mm. You race until you can't, and then they get rid of you, to put it lightly. And then we just have to deal with the consequences of that toll and the stigma that society kind of places around it. That, well, maybe you shouldn't have been a stripper. You wouldn't have bad knees if you weren't a stripper. Or maybe you should have made different choices for yourself, and then you would have health care, X, Y, Z. It's like this dismissive tone that people take whenever we express pain or hurt. And ladies, we have reached the end of part one. Thank you so much to Dr. Carolina Are. You can follow her on Instagram and TikTok at Blogger on Poll. Thank you also to my fellow Kristen for inspiring this episode. And of course, thank you to Selena the Stripper. But this is not goodbye to Selena. Because friends, we've still got part two. It's coming out week after next and you're gonna need to listen in because if you think we covered a lot there's still so much more cold answers kind of by proxy of what sex workers we're dealing with with our diminished communication lines our diminished abilities to protect ourselves fewer venues to like post ads online which led to more people turning to street-based sex work again which led to an increase in femicide directed toward sex workers so cold answers felt like a little bit of that, like a little sprinkle of what sex workers were feeling. And they were like, oh my God, I feel so oppressed right now. In the meantime, follow Selena the Stripper on Instagram at Pretty Boy Girl. And you can also support them directly on Patreon. They are the real Pretty Boy Girl over there. You can also follow Strippers United, East London Stripper Collective, Decrim Now UK, Black Sex Workers Collective, United Sex Workers. You can listen to Yes, a Stripper podcast. And you know what else you can do? You can follow Unladylike Media on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And ooh, I know I'm going to hear from y'all on this one. 
The DMs are open. The inbox is open. Hello at unladylike.co is the email address. And if you'd like to tip your podcaster, head over to patreon.com slash unladylikemedia. For $5 a month or more, you get an extra bonus episode every single week, full-length interviews with our featured guests, and more. Sometimes you get free merch. Yeah, sometimes I just want to clear some stuff out. So who do I ask? Patrons. You want some stuff? Come get it. Patreon.com slash unladylikemedia. Unladylike is a Starburns audio production created, executive produced, written, and hosted by me, Kristen Conger. Our senior producer and engineer is Aristotle Acevedo. Catherine Caligori is our associate producer. Our music is by Flamingo Shadow, Ami Mae Cohen, and Sarah Tudson. Until next week. What is the most unladylike thing about you? Ooh, that's that's a good question because I feel like there are so many unladylike things about me. I just really, really, really love not dressing up. I just get to be a slob in my PJs. I have this like giant koala PJs and it's like fleece and it's so large you can't even see my body. We push women to be so well put together all the time and sometimes I just don't want to do that. I don't want to perform femininity and my koala PJs is my rejection of those values. Starbanks Audio, a podcast, <clears throat> a podcast network.